Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we are beginning this morning our second sermon in a series in John chapter 3 titled Born Again. And we're looking carefully at what Jesus says to Nicodemus in response to a question, how can someone enter into the kingdom of God? How can someone go back into the presence of God who has been sinful? How can someone be forgiven, cleansed, made righteous, so that they can enter into paradise and not into judgment? And so our passage today is verses 9 through 15. If you'd follow along with me as I read, and then I'll pray for us. I'm sorry, uh, John, 9, John 3, 9 through 16. I apologize. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you and ask that, as Dustin prayed, that you would teach us, that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, that you would give us, by your Spirit, the ability to understand that in order to be saved, we must look to Jesus. And that's all we can do, is look to Jesus. That there is nothing we can contribute to what he has done for our salvation. So Lord, if we come this morning lost, I pray that you would direct the eyes of our hearts to Christ. If we come this morning striving on our own merit, that you would enable us to release that pride and look fully to Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would teach us and lead us and guide us into truth as Jesus prays in his name. Amen. In 1992, Gary Chapman wrote a book that would become, for many years, a New York Times bestseller's called The Five Love Languages. And The Five Love Languages not only has sold millions of copies, but it's also helped many couples, even though the theory itself has its skeptics. The the basic theory of the book is that a a person has primary and secondary ways of receiving and expressing love. And the problem that Chapman is addressing is that many couples struggle in this area because they don't know how to show their spouse love appropriately. So, for instance, someone whose love language is affection might be married to someone who showers them with affirmation, and they hear all of these compliments, but all they want them their spouse to do is reach over and hold their hand. So the idea being that we may be loved but not feel loved. Now, an unintended consequence of this book is that people want to be loved and they want love expressed towards them in ways that they prefer that their spouse love and express 
affection towards them. And that might be helpful in a marriage, but it might be dangerous in our relationship with God. Some people think that God doesn't love them because God isn't doing something that they think that God should be doing or that they wish God would do, and so they feel unloved by God. And then the response is, since God isn't doing what they think God should do, that they're like a spouse whose primary love language isn't being spoken, and they distance themselves from God, and they think, God doesn't love me. But in our passage today, we're told that God does love us, and we're told how we know that God loves us. You see, God is telling us in this passage how we know that God loves us. And so if you're here this morning and you have in your own soul an unsettled feeling that God might not love me because things aren't lining up the way I wish they'd line up, and you've distanced yourself from God like a spouse who's not being loved the way they want to be loved, this passage tells us that God has demonstrated once and for all that he loves you in the way you need. And so our passage is about love, and the title of the sermon is The Truth About God's Love. The truth about God's saving love, which leads to eternal life for those who believe. And the sermon, you can follow along on the bulletin, is divided up into three parts. The truth from the right source, truth about eternal life, and truth about our problem and God's solution. So first, truth from the right source. We can all agree this morning that getting your information from the right source is important. There's a lot of debate in our society over where someone gets their information. But we can all agree that if you're going to get medical advice, you should get medical advice from somebody that has been to medical school. Or if you're going to get legal advice, you should get legal advice for someone that's been to law school. And if you're going to get advice about God, and advice about heaven, and advice about the invisible realm we all want to know about, you should get it from someone who's been there. Does that make sense? And so in our passage, Jesus says to Nicodemus, I'm telling you heavenly things because I'm the Son of Man who is descended from heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, I've been there, so I can tell you how to go there. This is getting at the fact that Jesus is an eternal God in the flesh. Your life started the moment of your conception, but Jesus existed in eternity past. He took on human flesh but he existed before he took on human flesh. He is the pre-existent, eternal Lord of the universe. And so he's saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, listen to me. I'm a trusted source about heaven because I'm the only human on earth who's come from there and will return from there. I am the Son of Man. Now, the title that Jesus most often uses for himself is this title, Son of Man. You might think, well, what's the big deal? I'm a son of a man. 
I mean, is that anything special? Well, if you just analyze those words, no. But if you read Daniel chapter 7, you read in Daniel chapter 7 a prophecy about one who would come and be God's long-awaited Messiah. Let me read these words to you from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel says, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, I see the Son of Man. And Jesus stands to Nicodemus in this nighttime conversation and says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you can trust what I have to say about heaven. I'm the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, I came from heaven. I'm the eternal king. I'm the one with dominion. And I'm the one who can tell you how to enter into eternal life. Hands at the door and knocks and says, I'm from there. I can tell you how to get there. You can trust me. Jesus never lies. Who's your source? For most people, it's just themselves. Most people think, well, I just trust what I think. But friend, let me challenge you lovingly. How many times in your life have you been wrong? You thought it was a good person to date, turned out not to be a good person to date. You thought it'd be a good thing to buy, turns out you regret it. Your life is filled with decisions that if you're honest, reveal that you are not to be a trusted source of information about eternal things. The only trusted source about eternal things is Jesus. Jesus is saying, listen to me, trust me, I'm the right source. I'll tell you how to enter heaven. The truth from the right source. Number two, the truth about eternal life. Eternal life, that's what this passage is about. We see this in verse 14. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life's a funny thing. I mean, we have movies about vampires because there's something in us as humans that's fascinated with eternal life. The idea of never dying and living forever. But if I can just make an observation about vampire movies, the vampires are always miserable. And you know why they're miserable? Because no one would want to live forever in an earth that's filled with sin and sickness and disease and suffering and lies and all manner of evil. You see, eternal life isn't just about the duration. It's about the quality because as Christians, we enter into eternal life. This passage tells us the moment we believe. That doesn't mean you're not going to die unless Jesus comes back. All of us pay taxes and die. However, 
However, in this life, you experience the quality of eternal life. And when you die, you experience the duration. But the quality is the relationship with God. The quality is knowing that you're forgiven. The quality is knowing that your sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. It's, it's not just as humans that we want to live forever. You actually wouldn't want that. What we want is to live forever in the absence of evil and sin and shame and suffering in the presence of our maker. And Jesus says, I'm the trusted source about how you can have that. Jesus says, I'm going to tell you the truth about how you can have eternal life, not only in duration, but in quality. So number three, the meat of it all. The truth about our problem and God's solution. Now in the passage, I want to draw your attention to verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 16 is without a doubt the most well-known verse in the whole Bible. I mean, watch the Super Bowl today. Somebody will be holding up a sign that says, John 3.16. They should be holding up a sign that says, John 3.14-16. through 16. Because if you want to understand verse 16, you have to understand verses 14 and 15. Have you ever been at someone's house, like a friend and you're with their family, and they're telling stories about the good old days, and you sort of sit there shoveling mashed potatoes thinking, I have no idea what they're talking about. Most Christians feel a bit like that when they read verses 14 and 15, which is why they get to verse 16, because they have no idea what Jesus is talking about. And in order to understand, we have to turn to the Old Testament. I've asked Donnie to put it on the slide if it's possible because the passage is from Numbers, Numbers chapter 21. And in Numbers chapter 21, we're told that the Canaanites have defeated the Israelites. And the Israelites are upset about this. And so they do what fallen people do when they're upset, when they're disappointed. They rebel against God. Pick up the story in verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water. We loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look to the serpent and live. This is the story that Jesus says, Nicodemus, remember that story from Numbers 21. 
So the story is the people sin against God. And God judges the people. He judges them for what their sins deserve. And what do sins deserve? We know this from Genesis. The wages of sin is death. And so God sends snakes. Why snakes? Well, in the Bible, sorry if you're a snake lover. In the Bible, snakes represent rebellion against God. This doesn't mean snakes are bad. If you have a pate snake, that's fine. Strange, but fine. But back in the Garden of Eden, Satan enters in as a serpent. And so serpents represent sin and death. And so God sends judgment in the form of serpents. And the people who have been rebelling now acknowledge their sin. They say, we have sinned. Listen, friends, this is the first step in your relationship with God. Just acknowledge to God that you've sinned. The people say, we've sinned. And then God brings about their deliverance. And he says, make a fiery serpent. And so Moses makes a serpent And the serpent, specifically, we are told, is bronze. And so this serpent, this bronze serpent statue, is put on a pole, and Moses lifts it up, and you can imagine countless numbers of people writhing in pain from serpent bites. The judgment of their sin. And Moses holds up the serpent, and he stands among God's people, and he says, if you look... To the serpent you will live. Now, why the serpent? Because the salvation is the cursed thing. Only by looking upon the cursed thing will be, they be delivered from their curse. And it's interesting that the color of the, cur- the cursed thing might well have been sort of a reddish brown, sort of an indication of atonement. But the people's only choice to be saved is to look upon the cursed thing. Pick it back up in John chapter 3. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Jesus says, And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world. Now let me just say that often when we quote John 3.16, we, we, we highlight that word so to indicate emphasis. For God so, have you ever heard a preacher do that? For God so loved the world. But I don't actually think that's the point. I don't think the point is emphasis, although you cannot emphasize God's love enough. The point is example. Jesus is saying Nicodemus, You're a smart guy. Remember that story about Moses and the people and the stick and the serpent? Remember how they were saved if they looked upon the cursed thing? He says, Nicodemus, so too I will be lifted up. Jesus is saying that's the example. The Son of Man will be lifted up. He will become the cursed thing on the tree so that anyone who looks upon him will be saved. Write down this verse, Galatians 3.13. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse. As the Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. On the tree, the sinless Son of God took on himself our sin. He became cursed for you so that if you look upon him, you will be saved. Now in the wilderness, God didn't say, I'm going to give you five options. We'll have the snake on the pole and we'll have these other options too. And you, this is the menu, you choose. No. Just like you don't get to tell God how he's going to love you. You don't get to tell God how he's going to save you. Jesus says, here's how it is, Nicodemus. Just like there was only one way to be saved from those fiery serpents in the wilderness, there is only one way to be saved from sin and death. I'm going to go on a tree. I'm going to become the curse. And if you look upon me and believe in me, not just know about me, but believe in me, you will have eternal life, not just the quantity, but the quality. Write down 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when Jesus says, for God so loved the world, it's like he's pointing at something. He's pointing at a story, the story of Moses and the serpent lifted up. And he's saying, Nicodemus, that's what I'm going to do for you. And Jesus says, that's how you know God loves you. You know that God loves you because Jesus became the cursed thing. So that if we look upon him, the sinless son of man, hanging on a cross with your sins upon him, and if you believe that he is the only sacrifice you need to be saved, then his act on that cross achieves for you forgiveness and reconciliation and eternal life. But it's not just knowing that. It's believing that. So listen, friends, whether or not God loves you, it doesn't rest on how your bank account's doing. It's not resting upon whether or not you got that promotion. It doesn't hinge on the outcomes of that medical test. It's not dependent on how successful or unsuccessful your relationships have been. The eternal proof of God's love for you, Jesus says, is that he went willingly on a cross for you. So Jesus says, that's how you know that God loves you. So the question this morning is, do you believe? Do you believe? You know, there are some passages of Scripture that are kind of hard to apply. This is not hard. The application of the passage is very simple. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're, for the first time, willing to admit, I've sinned, I've rebelled, the passage will tell us, confess your sins, look to Jesus, he'll save you. But in looking to Jesus, you have to stop looking to other things. That's the interesting thing about the whole story of Moses and the serpent. You would have to stop looking at something else 
to look on the serpent, to look on God's means of salvation. And so it is with Jesus. If you will believe savingly in Jesus, it means you have to let go of other things. You have to stop looking to yourself. You have to stop trusting in what you think you've done. You've got to stop trusting in what you consider to be your good works. And you have to say, God, I come with nothing. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. Save me. I look to Jesus. And Jesus says, if you do, whoever believes has. The moment they believe, the moment you believe, you possess eternal life. God's spirit enters in and you are born again. John 3, 14 through 16. That's what the signs should say. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we bless you for your kindness. You've been so patient with us, Lord. We've rebelled against you so much. Lord, in the things we've done and in the things we've left undone, we are great sinners, but Jesus is a great Savior. So I pray this morning, God, that someone right now would move from the category of just knowing to believing. That someone would stop looking at their own hands as if they can work about their cure, and they can look upon Jesus, the cure, to sin and death. Lord, would you fill your believers with holy confidence to trust, to follow, to obey, to tell, so that others can look to Jesus and be saved. And God, would you make Calvary an outpost of gospel proclamation for years to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.